Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Draft Reading Series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in Lighthouse Workshops that hovers around a given theme. The Draft happens once per eight-week session, every winter, spring, late summer, and fall, and writers and workshops are drafted literally by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of Draft 15.0 is Family Feuds and features short fiction writer Jomar White, poet Roxanne Banks-Malaya, screenwriter Jenny Taylor-Whitehorn, and memorist Judith Gelt. We invite you to pause for a moment to help support this and future podcasts by getting out your cell phone and texting the word right now. That's W-R-I-T-E-N-O-W, no spaces, all lowercase, to 20222 to donate $5 to The Lighthouse. It's a simple two-step process. Text right now to the number 20. 20- Two two two, and then text yes to confirm, and five dollars will be added to your mobile bill. Message and data rates may apply. Thank you for supporting the Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Welcome everybody to the Draft fifteen point This is, it's almost been four years, right? Sixteen divided by four is four. Yeah, so four years ago we did this at, uh, oh God, a long, a long time ago. There, I just remember there was a, um, a large stuffed antelope type animal. Anybody, anybody here from that? Yes, do you remember that? The, um, what was it? It was a, uh, it was a what? What kind of an animal? It was a dead one. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Mike Henry. For those of you who don't know me, um, thank you for coming tonight. I, uh, I have a bunch of notes because um, if you know Andrew and I and if you've been to events before, um, sometimes we get, um, uh, sometimes we get s- some negative feedback for um, our extemporaneous comments. That's nice of you to say. Sometimes. Which I think, no, I, you know, I, extemporaneity, is that a word? Extemporaneousness. What's nothing wrong with that, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome. Um, I'm going to read some notes. Please stay awake. Uh, thank you for coming. The, uh, for those of you who don't know, or those of you who do know, I'm going to repeat myself. The draft is an all-inclusive event. It's um, it's our chance to highlight and to celebrate the incredible talent and the incredible writing in our workshops. So what happens is we, every, every session we go out and we ask our instructors, okay, what do you got in your classes? Um, here, here's a subject. And we usually throw out a topic like family feuds. That's the topic for tonight. Um, and then the instructors come back and say, I have some really, really amazingly talented writers, but this one person I think will fit that subject perfectly. So um, they get drafted. It's conscription. Yes, and you don't get any benefits afterwards. I'm sorry about that. Um, so again, welcome to that. Um, if you're new to Lighthouse, welcome to 1515 Race Street. Um, we are a big, open, and welcoming family. We rarely feud here at Lighthouse. Um, so welcome. Thanks for coming. I appreciate it. There, there's a lot of new faces. There's more and more new faces every, every single time, which is wonderful. So please, um, if you are a long-timer at Lighthouse and you see somebody you don't know, it's okay to be creepy and go say, hi, (laughs) 
who are you? What do you write? Oh, are you working on something right now? Excellent. Have you been published anywhere? Oh, you should take a workshop. Okay, all right. No, no, no. Sorry. See? The extemporaneous thing. I'm not reading from my notes. It's bad. Um... I was going to try and be really bossy, and I was going to have you stand up and do like a peace be with you thing, like, hello, I'm so-and-so, but I'm going to skip right past that. Did you do that upstairs? Yeah? Peace be with you? Cool. Should we do communion then? Everybody ready? Body and blood of Christ? No, let's not do that. Okay, so, family feuds. Um, I'm going to be sort of like Richard Dawson tonight. So anybody who comes up here, he has to kiss me on the lips. Right? I've been looking forward to this for a while. And it's okay. The, um, what's that? Who wants to kiss me? Excuse me? Um, I've been taking antibiotics for like almost a week now, so the sore is, is just about gone, so you'll be okay. Thank you. All right. So in, in honor of family feuds, just to get us warmed up, I, I hope this isn't going too long, is it? It's, Say no, thank you. I, I'm gonna, I want to read a poem by um, a previous, our, our last writer studio guest, Thomas Locks, a poet, um, in honor of family feuds. This is called Autobiographical, and then we'll, we'll get to the readers. Autobiographical. And it's funny, so feel free to, to chuckle. <clears throat> the minute my brother gets out of jail, I want some answers. When our mother murdered our father, did she find out first? Did he tell her? The pistol's tip parting his temple's fine hairs. Did he tell her where our sister, the youngest Alice, hid the money grandma, mother's side, stole from her golden age group? It was a lot of money, but enough to die for, was what mom said she asked him, giving him a choice. I'll see you in hell, she said, Dad said. And then she said, this is in the trial transcript, not anytime soon, needle dick. <laughs> we know Alice hid the money. She was arrested a week later in Tacoma for armed robbery, which she would not have done if she had it. Alice was, she died of a heroin overdose six hours after making bail. This is really funny, after making bail. <laughs> Syphilitic, stupid, and rude, but not greedy. So she hid the money, or Grandma did, but since her stroke, she can't say a word, doesn't seem to know anybody. Doing a dime at Danamora for an unrelated sex crime, my brother might know something but won't answer my letters, refuses to see me, though he was the one who called me at divinity school after mom was arrested. <laughs> he could hardly get the story out from laughing so much. Dad had missed his third in a row the day before with his parole officer. The cops were sent to pick him up. Bad timing, said Mom, and found him before he was cold. He was going back to jail anyway, Mom said, said the cops, which they could and did use against her to the tomb of double digits, which means what with the lupus, she's guaranteed to die inside. This is terrible. Sorry. Ask her? She won't talk to me. She won't even give me the time of day. All right. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so the lineup tonight, very exciting. Um, Judith Gelt, Roxanne Banks, Jomar White, and Jenny Taylor Whitehorn. You are in for it. This is going to be awesome. So my job, I'm going to be back up here at least three more times. I'm sorry. Um, is to introduce the instructors who drafted the readers, and they will introduce those 
said readers. Is that how it works? Something like that. Exactly. Okay, so there will be four times two, eight people doing besides. Okay. Really short. Much shorter than my introduction. Um, I, it's my pleasure to introduce our um, memoir, our new memoir instructor, Richard. Um, is it Freud, like Sigmund, or? Froud. Froud. Richard Freud. I'm sorry. Froud. Um, wonderful. He's really adorable. I, I, I look at him and I feel happy, and um, I, I think of, I, I don't know, I think of um, Dr. Seuss. I don't know why. He, he's just. He's just He's like, oh my God, I've only met this guy once. What is he saying? Um, so we had this instructor. His name is Harrison somebody. I've already forgotten about him. Um, he was a really great instructor, very, very popular. And of course, he got a full-time tenure-track job in Virginia. Psst. Anyways. And we were kind of all kind of mourning the loss of Harrison. And in comes adorable Richard. And he sort of won our hearts. And we've forgotten about that Harrison guy. Um, what I wrote was he came in and Richard came in and swept us off our feet. This sounds mildly, I don't know, br- bridal. Um, and we said, Harrison who? Oh, that guy. I sort of remember him. Anyways, so please welcome Richard. Thank you for... Uh... <laughs> For that intro. <laughs> but you do make me happy when I look at you. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Richard Frau, and uh, Judith Gelt was in my uh, recently concluded advanced uh, memoir class. So I'm going to uh, introduce uh, her reading. There is a restraint to Judith Gelt's writing that carries both blunt honesty and crafted tenderness. Initially, I was struck by the sparseness of her prose, punctuated by moments of wit, moments of play, pirouettes of linguistic acrobatics. There is an impulse toward the ornamental here, but an impulse well-controlled to ensure these departures are allowed their total power. What could be merely decorative becomes enticingly illustrative. Sure enough, In Judith's current project, we find this syntactical exchange. Here it is between the unembroidered truth of a narrator surrounded by mental illness and the various flourishes of, in Judith's words, a love that transcends sanity. That these flourishes find their way into language is the basis of the piece's energy. They are where we enter the work, and as readers, they propel us forward. If this sounds appropriate, it's because it is. After all, it is in the flourishes of enduring love, perhaps occasional, maybe unexpected, but always transcendent, that each of us enters the world. Please welcome Judith Gelt. That was amazing. Is he gone? Did he leave? Okay. Now, actually, I thought I was going to have to break the ice because Andrea said they usually start with something funny, of course, and then Michael came up here and he was really funny. But I brought my little sippy saurus just to show you that I could be funny and not just depressing. <laughs> so. That's my sippy saurus. 
because none of this is, you know, like really funny. Um, <laughs> but you did a great job. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Richard. That was amazing. Is this a good... Yeah. Okay, so um, my project is called Snow on Pluto. It's a memoir, and I'm starting in the middle, which is annoying for me when I'm in the audience. So what you need to know is that um, I'm 16, and even though the uh, project is not written in chronological order, what's going on is that I have grown up in Denver in a suburban neighborhood, upper middle class, and I have had... um, to grow up with a bipolar mother and an emotionally distant bully of a father. Um, And at this point, uh, life has dished out some pretty nasty uh, episodes my way, and uh, life at home is incredibly sad. So the chapter just preceding this, I've attempted suicide. And this chapter is called Aftermath. And this is not the whole chapter, but an excerpt. The surface under my butt and thighs was cold and hard, My bare legs dangled. A flimsy gown hung to my knees. A man in white faced me and moved his lips. I fell back, rolled to my side, and pulled my knees to my chest. Darkness carried me under. There was no tunnel. No bright white light appeared. I opened my eyes and had to squint if I looked toward a window against one wall. I didn't know it was the next morning, that I'd slept through whatever happened at the emergency room, or that I'd even been to one. I had no idea where I was. A picture flashed the back seat of my mother's car. I closed my eyes. I didn't die. My clothes lay folded on a chair. I stood, and my pale feet touched white linoleum before they felt the cold. I dressed blue culottes, white blouse, white sandals, more images, sitting in Mr. Hewley's red VW, then on the couch in his apartment, his heavy body on top of mine, the stink of brute cologne, searching for my mother's pills, driving from the house, meadowlark singing, falling asleep like a movie. I walked out of the room, down a short hallway, and through a door into painful yellow light. I knew this neighborhood. It was only a few miles from school. My sandals aimed toward Patty's face. I had to see her. My forehead throbbing from angry sun, I placed one white sandal in front of the other. Over and over and over and over, I faded with every step. I reached the campus and moved through glass doors. My face relaxed in the shaded front hallway where a large clock hung above the office doors. In a few minutes... I would catch Patty coming from P.E. Finally, a bell clanged. Like a whacked beehive, a buzz split the silence and bodies flew. I scanned for her face. She was with a small group of girls. I was so relieved to see her, but what if I'd already faded past recognition? What are you doing here? Should you be here? She had her hand on my arm and stared into my face. I didn't know what she meant. Hey, it was all I could say. My voice sounded funny, high-pitched, like a cartoon character's. Everyone else kept walking, and we stood face-to-face in the hall, alone, in sudden silence. I had no idea it was my best friend who'd discovered me in the backseat of my mother's car. I found out weeks later she and her boyfriend, Clark, were taking a romantic stroll that afternoon. They couldn't wake me, so Clark drove me home 
with Patty riding shotgun and my body still fetal positioned across the back seat. I never asked Patty to describe any of it. I didn't care. I'd swallowed those pills to rescue me, to send ultimate relief from living. My motives hadn't included punishing or hurting others, though of course I had. But eventually, I wanted to witness how people handled events while I'd floated between the success and failure of dying, and I recreated the day. The doorbell rang. It was almost dinner time. Since it was Sunday, my father had returned from playing a round of golf at Green Gables, or maybe he wasn't playing golf by then, had given it up because he wasn't in shape, his belly already shading his shoes. I can't pinpoint this in time for some reason, but he'd returned recently from somewhere and opened the door. Mr. Gelt? Patty stood in the yellow light and cool air of April's late afternoon. Next to her was Clark, tall and lanky. She shivered, and his arms stretched around her waist for support. Even though they spent a lot of time together, they often included me. Clark and I had the same sense of humor, made each other and Patty laugh. She and Clark weren't smiling now. He was attempting eye contact, but my father focused on Patty's anxious face. Judy's not here, my father said. He still held the door. We know, Clark said. She's in the car. He pointed to the drive where my mother's Chevy Malibu was parked. No one appeared to be inside. My father felt the strangeness of the situation seep in, and his hand trembled. Then his confusion clicked to control. Where was she? His voice was smooth, commanding. She was parked by the open space on Dahlia, not too far, Clark pointed down the street behind him. He was breathing hard. Clark and my father had never met, and Patty had told him that we thought my father was a shit, but Clark was one of those teenage boys confident with adults. Still, this wasn't the conversation he was expecting. During the drive there, he'd been wrestling with thoughts about how to handle the reactions, the emotions, when someone heard his news. She's in the back seat. We couldn't wake her, so we drove her straight here. He searched my father's face, his words coming faster, and we found this. He held out the empty pill bottle. I'll take it from here. My father reached for the bottle in Clark's hand and stepped from the doorway, walking around them. Clark's fears about what they'd found and what to do eased a bit, but Patty was close to tears. They watched my father look through the window at me lying on the back seat. He walked to the driver's side, opened the door, and removed the keys from where Clark left them in the ignition. You kids go home now. His voice was strong, but personable, polite. His confident stride and tone releasing them. My father's response shifted Patty from scared to stunned. Even if she viewed him as a contemptible parent, she'd expected his anguished, Oh my God, or pleas of, What happened? What do you know? My father was already on his way back inside, so Patty and Clark turned and walked the two blocks up Glencoe toward her house, Clark's arm squeezing her shoulders, her head pressed into his side. With Patty's tears now sobs, Clark had no idea how to comfort her. My father didn't give them another thought as he walked down the front hall to the bedroom. Dear, get up. His voice rose for the first time. It could have been either alarm or anger. My mother lay under the covers, inert and permanent like a museum exhibit. He stared down. It's Judy. Something's happened. She's in your car, and we're going to need to drive her to the hospital. At It's Judy, my mother raised herself on an elbow, 
by hospital. She stood searching her closet for clothes. She hadn't been out of her nightgown in two weeks, but she pulled on the closest slacks and blouse. Her hair must, her clothes haphazard. It appeared she'd dressed with her eyes closed. Any thoughts spun to a vague terror. She mumbled, What is it? What's happened? While she followed my father down the hall and out the front door, he didn't answer. She saw her car in the driveway, opened the passenger door, and got in. On the back seat, I lay facing front, knees to my chest. I looked peaceful and asleep. My mother looked over her shoulder. Then she screamed. A woman's voice, as deep as a man's, filled the school hallway. What's going on? Patty still held my arm. I turned. The dean stood behind me, Miss Etheridge, tall and wide, short dark hair hanging straight to her chin, unstyled. Nothing about her was styled. What are you wearing? There's a dress code here. She stared at my culottes. Those are not allowed. She looked at Patty. Go to class. Miss Etheridge grabbed my arm away from Patty's gentle hold. Miss Etheridge, Patty called after us, go to class now. My body twitched with each word. She pulled me toward her office, her clumpy heel slapping tile. I didn't hear Patty's voice again. Miss Etheridge stood next to her tidy desk and pointed to a chair. What's your name? She stared with dark, emotionless eyes and opened the dreaded breach of dress code notebook. Judy Gill? I hoped she'd heard me, that I'd actually spoken so she wouldn't ask again. Her phone rang. She held it to her ear. I have a right here. Okay. She hung up. You sit a minute. She moved past me out the door. We've missed you. I turned my head and saw a short man in the doorway, plastic name tag pinned to his T-shirt pocket. I'm Dale. I'm here to take you back with me to Bethesda. We've been looking all over for you. I didn't know him. But there was something about his smile. It calmed me, like Patty's face. Everything slowed. Trance-like, I stood and moved toward him. We walked out of the office, past Miss Etheridge, out the front doors, down the concrete steps, through the blazing parking lot. He drove back to Bethesda. He didn't ask questions. I was so faded I couldn't have answered anyway. A young woman met us. She led me down a hallway and into a room with a bed. Not the same room I'd left. There was no window. I lay on my stomach closed my eyes, sorry the sun couldn't get in to suck away whatever was left. Hello there. A man's white face and dark-rimmed glasses looked down. My head felt wobbly, it tumbled back. This was a hospital room. I ached everywhere. I unfolded my befuddled body and sat. My white sandals were still strapped to my feet. I'm Dr. Lockett's. I'm here to help. I understood little at first. I was in a locked building now because of my escape. I knew that I didn't want calls or visits from anyone, especially my parents, that I didn't belong here, that I still intended to die. Each morning, my eyes opened in the world I'd determined to never wake in again. Pain parked on my bones like a semi. It held me flat in the total silence, and I could move only my arms. The load on my chest drove tears into my ears, and I began attempts at suicide by bedsheet. I thought about prison movies, where the inmate hanged himself with a sheet attached to something on the ceiling. But there was nothing on this ceiling. Flat against the mattress, I grasped the top sheet in both fists and stretched the edge tight across my neck. As I tugged it tauter and tauter, and it pressed harder and further into my throat, 
I remembered things I'd heard somewhere about humans not having the capacity to carry out this sort of plan, survival instinct kicking in. Because the body's need for oxygen overruled the mind's desire to cut off the air, I thought about how if I could stop my breathing and pass out at the same time, I could do it. Finally, die. I experimented with holding my breath and not holding my breath. I always started breathing. I moved through time and space as a dense blob that barely spoke. If anyone demanded anything, my veins pulsed and organs pumped. But I froze the outsides solid, brought the blob to a halt. No one would see my crazy. Was I crazy? I woke every day locked inside Bethesda Mental Health Center, my mother's hospital for her mental illness. But she and I didn't share anything. I took action. She never did. Her pain went on and on. Ending my life, that was sanity. Dr. Lockett's was my assigned psychiatrist. I was to attend his sessions, all meals, and the three T's. OT, occupational therapy. I thought it meant we'd work on skills for an occupation, but I sat at a long wooden table in a room for arts and crafts. I'd loved arts and crafts when I was little. Popsicle stick houses and tinfoil reliefs, braided plastic lanyards and hand-woven oven mitts. Were those occupations? Apparently, it meant keep patients occupied. (laughs) Recreational therapy, RT. That was RW, recreational warfare. A net, a volleyball, the ball was a missile, and the players, artillery and targets, I was a target. I was convinced the staff were cheerleaders. When I held out my arms and lunged for a ball aimed at my head, it left stinging red circles on my forearms. If I cowered and ducked, Painful purple marks appeared on my back or shins. And group therapy? A circle of folding chairs filled an empty room. A doctor in one? The shrink? Discussion. Voices. Just voices. I remember no words. I don't remember my voice. Ever. Thank you, Judith. That was beautiful. Um, I'm feeling a little bit of MC's remorse. Um, in, in case you thought that some of my comments about Harrison were a little flippant, we do miss Harrison. He's an amazing guy. Uh, and we, no, really, uh, I feel kind of bad. Um, he's, he's an amazing teacher and a really talented writer. And he, just, he, he deserved that tenure track position in Virginia. He's listening live, and he's not very happy. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Uh, Again, thank you, Judith. Okay, so next up we have Roxanne Banks-Malia, introduced by Chris Rancic. I get to introduce Chris Rancic, who I considered a good friend um, and a personal inspiration. Uh, He's an incredibly talented poet and a soulful man. And uh, (laughs) that sounded creepy. I didn't mean it that way. Um, he's just a wonderful teacher. I find him very inspiring. Um, uh, and he's former Denver Poet Laureate. I don't know if you knew that. Yep. Mm-hmm. He, he has his crown in, um, you know, he got a crown, and it's under glass in your house, right? Uh, uh, yeah, right. Right above the garbage disposal, yes. So um, we're so lucky to have him as a faculty member. He's just an amazing guy. So please give it up for Chris Rancic. Say whatever you want, I'm still not kissing you. 
not on your best day. So, so uh, I'm really pleased to be able to uh, do this introduction tonight. Um, and I wanted to title it, What I Did on My Summer Vacation. Um, because I spent mine facilitating the poetry masterclass here at um, Lighthouse, which is such a pleasure to do. And I was reading full-length manuscripts of poetry from five uh, very talented writers, uh, including Andrea Doré. I saw her here this evening. Where are you? Yeah, and also uh, David Daniels is here. I think I saw you there. So, And Kathleen Willard, J. Diego Fry, and tonight's poet, Roxanne. So... If you came into classes on Thursday nights this summer and passed the rather uh, boozy animated group on the front porch, that was us. Yeah. Yeah. And I sat down last night to write up this introduction, and one thing kept coming to mind for me. Uh, the speaker of Roxanne's poems is so strong and so solid. Uh, it's a voice that I really came to appreciate and look forward to reading more of over the course of the summer. Um, and I think that uh, if po- in poetry, if the speaker is wounded, and tonight we're talking about family feuds, um, if the speaker's wounded, I respond most to the presence of resilience and what my mother would have called chutzpah, um, a sense of being grounded and a refusal to look only inward. And so I'm drawn in by poems that explore both that inner and outer terrain assertively. Uh, I like attitude. Okay. So as you're about to see, Roxanne's poems evoke the Rocky Mountain West and a woman's perspective in this place in very authentic ways. Uh, There is landscape, but the focus is on people in that landscape, Uh, the things that they make, the things that they tend, the way the mind and body blend with the land and are shaped by it. Her manuscript is full of poems about how we are bound to others day to day and also in memory. Uh, And her lines really sing. So please give a warm welcome to Roxanne Banks-Malia. So I was only boozy one time on the front porch. Because I was pregnant. So. Okay, so thank you, Chris. That was so kind. And... I'm so grateful to all of you guys who did the workshop with me. I have all this confidence in these poems that I didn't even think were contenders because of you guys, so thank you. Um, Okay, so my manuscript is dedicated to the memory of my father who passed away a couple years ago from, as one of my poems says, um, can you hear me okay? My mom is telling me what to do. <laughs> I'm not going to read those poems tonight she's here. <laughs> she didn't hear that. That's good. Okay. Um, so he passed away. One of my poems says from busted lungs. So he had um, chronic, with chronic illness, like emphysema and lung cancer, you kind of know where you're headed. And he had asked me to read the eulogy at his funeral, and so I thought I'd have this chance to talk to him about it beforehand and kind of shrug my responsibility and get some notes. So I said, you know, Dad, what, what, should, I, what should I say? And he said, say whatever the hell you want. I won't be there for it. <laughs> so these poems are from that kind of encouragement. <laughs> And the first one is called, I Forgot and Drove to Wyoming. As old cottonwoods survived telephone lines, limbs lopped off, arching back over a ravine that follows the road paved through sage, 
I see you, your acquiescing stunts, heart pruned by chainsaw. If I drive with eyes closed, I can make it, I can last, at least to the next exit, a Motel 6, where a steel fan prattles to forget that we won't last, that you won't first. Step to the mirror. Just step to it and see first things first. Not dust and tile grout, not lines lectured at my eyes, but eyes that follow a dotted line around the mesa, bloated cottonwood reaching from ravine to an image in oil spots of you as a turbine, arms slicing gridded air. You are a makeshift turbine, and I am the cottonwood shorn bare on roadside, bent away from wires, flanked by telephone poles, and you, scissored star, oh, excuse me, scissor triangle, scissored star, propped atop an oil well scaffold, red paint chipped, metal rusted. We face the ravine with bent limbs, mine backward and dappling its dirty mouth, yours flung wide. Groaning for air. (laughs) So I also have an aftermath. Um, This is called the aftermath of the missed phone call, and this gave. This is on a like Halloween Dia de los Muertos kind of night. Came gave rise to this poem. So aftermath of the missed phone call. Stars are dusty, but still you sing twinkle, twinkle to the sky. Its spotted wall, mountainous as the wall I'm facing, where table and chairs have nicked and scraped, scratched white through black paint. The stars are dusty, but I misplaced my rag, so we'll dust with our tongues, or try to, and I'll wipe your boots, throw them back in the sky, and consider how to get you down. What made you circle the lawn last night, swooping low, your howling eyes? What's this I hear? I should know better than to wait. For today, I try to find you, but you're gone, and I'm here with this gritty orange carpet, beaming in the sun, fumbling pages of thick air, reading another surgeon's warning. A bushel and a peck. Hold on. (laughs) I love you. Next time, I'll strike my match on your chair, watch us blaze out windows... This rusty loom glows orange in my feet. I dig in my nails. I don't know why I'm so emotional. It's not because of the poems. I think it's because I'm still nursing, so. Okay, so this one's called, um, this is a different type of family feud, um, different way of thinking about family. Um, This one's called, What My Poem Would Tell You If You Ever Read It. (laughs) (laughs) I love you the way a cat rabbit punches a catnip toy, locked in embrace under the table. For under our table is a den, dark and sturdy as a blanket fort, the catnip sticky and fresh, and claws are freed of their curve, if only ephemerally, in faux fur. (laughs) For us, I would give my spleen in all its stoic (laughs) eggplant-ness. Sorry. (laughs) 
I seek you as a moth flies to flame. I am more certain than the train that howls each night at our window, knocks blinds, rattles locks, so lusty, so cantankerous. So that moth in the zapper last summer in Lyman or West Kansas? I call you Butterball. (laughs) When I know you deserve Dean or Rex or Old Blue. But your feet are Thanksgiving and gamey as ganders. I'd crawl on the roof to watch you come in, steady and steely as an August tornado. Baby, hush. No snoring. You were Roosevelt to my Churchill, my Marshall Plan, when you stood up to Omar, the Mexican timeshare salesman, (laughs) who said, you don't deserve vacation. (laughs) Our honeymoon. I'll never be your pizza burning. My worms that surface sidewalks post-rain. Your spiders that haunt, crawl through tub drain. I'd teach you poetry in prison. (laughs) And this is another type of feud. So this one's called Let Us Just Wrestle or Woo. I am a stubble yard rubbed bare by ringing. You are a push mower, a plastic bag, and hell, You can be the dried blood and bone meal as well. Or be the rake. I strike match and suck woolen air. Then you appear. Cup your hands to catch the ash. And you aren't mad and haven't been crying. Is that why you're here, big hands picking up after me? How can my trash rest so clean in your palm? Where's your pride, the lesson, What happened to your checklist, your point? That dark flood in your eyes again. Am I a plan to be happy, or are you waiting for a drought to save you? And so this is the last poem, and it um, is from a painting that I did that's from a photograph that I took of the ranch where my dad grew up. And like the painting, and like my dad, this is called On an Unfinished Project. Tonight the road is blue, and painted lines disappear in shadows as thick and opalescent as oil. The brush where you hid, only a limey outline, an unfinished welcome on the drive up to your house. Tonight the road is blue, and I want to eat cottonwood leaves that clap over billowed sky to change my taste the way I see this hallowed scene. For somewhere in this heaven sits a worm board slag heap, probably tucked behind the potato barn, but probably not even tucked. Knowing us, the tractor rusts at the barn door. Grasshoppers ricochet from its black paint chip saddle to tall grass entwined in the chassis. And that so-called barn is only a shed stained with motor oil and milk, Gritty screws sprouting through a God-forsaken dirt floor. God is not here, except in the milk. But you shot the barn cats with that in your chore games, milking cows, aiming teats at tails, cross-hatching your score in the floor. 
Tonight, the road is a river carrying me in a wheel-well reflection to your hands. Crossed, hands fumbling, handwriting sliding off the page in a side note to the sausage recipe. Don't use all that garlic. You know your pop and garlic. I chant in a sleepless life along the river road, through prayers and sage, cottonwood and thistle, nailing wormwood to a copper-framed doorway. Tonight, blue falls between you and shadow. Your welding mask dulls sparks falling from the solder, falling into the river and forever. Thank you, Roxanne. That was beautiful. Okay, next up we have um, Jomar White, who was drafted by Erica Krauss, who couldn't be here tonight. So I'm just going to read what she told me to, to say. Um, Jomar White has lived in L.A., San Francisco, New York, Providence, Boston, Cambridge, Dallas, Beijing, and finally Denver. Are you moving anywhere else? Are you going anywhere else? Anytime soon? Maybe. Maybe, okay. <laughs> Before his current job with the Colorado Children, Youth, and Families Division, he was a fashion designer for eight years, working with such companies as J.C. Penney and Esquire magazine. Jomar's fiction is as exciting as his life. He has a gift for navigating complex relationships, exposing the underlying humanity within tragic situations. The ties between his characters are strong and fragile at the same time. And Jomar bravely navigates those baffling gray areas where we live our lives. Please join me in welcoming Jomar White. All righty. Um, So this is from a a larger project called Isaiah and the Vanished. On a bus ride going home from school, I realized I had forgotten to do the dishes, take out the garbage, and vacuum before I left that morning. When I reached the house, I trembled while opening the door. Mom was inside screaming. It's not my fault, Benita. How dare you suggest this is my fault? Apparently, she was on the phone with Auntie B. I turned everyone against her? Have you lost your fucking mind? She paused. Auntie B's voice was, from the receiver was loud, though unintelligible. Mom saw me tiptoeing through the front door and pulled the phone out from between her jaw and fleshy shoulder. Isaiah, Granny is missing. Honestly, I didn't feel much of anything when Mom told me that. Sure, Granny had been rather distant for a couple weeks, but I figured it was because her boyfriend had recently passed away. We all had noticed Granny's withdrawal a few nights prior when everyone was over playing dominoes. One of my uncles suggested she was slumped over the toilet, violently hung over. One hell of a bender. Between swigs of his beer, he burped out, maybe she's dead. (laughs) Auntie B said, Granny had fallen and couldn't get up. We all fell out laughing, thinking of the pathetic old lady in the television commercial. Mom continued to yell into the phone, I told her she can come and live here. Isaiah was there, weren't you, Isaiah? Mom looked over to me, and I nodded like a marionette. I said, Ma, you can come and live with me and Isaiah if you want. Pause. Benita, I told her that she'd come and live here. She could have the whole second floor with Isaiah. I'd never go up there anyway. I told her she can come, and she never came. (laughs) With that, I decided not to linger and crept upstairs to my room. 
What she said annoyed me. It's everyone else's responsibility to do the work. Mine to run errands, to do household chores, grocery shop. Soon I'll be paying bills. Auntie B's to inform us of any and all family dramas and to solve them herself. And Granny's to shake off her depression, pack a couple of bags, lug them to the bus stop, wait for God knows how long, travel 45 minutes, then knock on our door. At which point... I'll be asked to retrieve Granny's bags, take them upstairs, clear out years of papers from the spare room, and make the bed. I know it sounds callous, but Granny's silence was much welcome. She had had this daily routine of berating telephone calls and fantastic accusations. Her speech had taken over where her fists had felled her. She was much too weak to beat on anyone anymore. But that didn't prevent her from viciously pinching everyone with two chunky fingers that invariably smelled of cigarettes and malt liquor. But it turned out she wasn't being silent. Rather, she was nowhere to be found. And except for Auntie B, none of us would care that she was gone. <laughs> Later in the evening, Mom told me to get the belt. Even Granny's disappearance wouldn't grant me a reprieve from the forgotten chores. Hold them out, she demanded. And I closed my eyes while outstretching my arms and hands. She likes to target the places where the offense occurs. Not doing chores means the arms and hands gets it. The belt burns against welts still fresh from the whipping days prior. Tomorrow will be another long sleeve shirt day, I thought between the lashes. Upstairs, I soaked my forearms in a bucket of cold water, then went to bed wishing I could do something about this. The chores, the screaming, errands so numerous I can barely get my schoolwork done. Whippings nearly every other day. I wish something could be done. But I cowered in her presence, trembled under her gaze, and always felt five years old all over again. It's kind of hard to be wearing long sleeves, my teacher said. I'm experimenting with, I'm experimenting with my style, I told him. <laughs> he, caught me look, he caught me tugging at my shirt sleeves, pulling them lower, lower over my hands. The welt still burned on my forearms, and I didn't want anyone to see it. Well, I don't think the ladies around here will find a sweaty 15-year-old boy all that cute. Why you gotta clown me, Mr. Robinson? I'm 16. <laughs> he held me after class to give me some books. Actually, he tossed them from across the room. I winced every time one hit my forearms, but I kept smiling. The last one had an illustration of an old Chinese guy on the cover. The Analex was its title. <laughs> I grunted while flipping through its pages. Filial piety, what's that? Look it up, he said, and sent me on my way. Auntie B called while I was doing the dishes. I told her mom was at home, but she went right on talking anyway. It's impossible to contribute to any conversation that includes Auntie B. We've all adapted, allowing her to drone on with the hope that she loses energy and finally shuts up. I'll, I'll spare you the misery. The gist of it was she was doing all the work. She was the only one looking for Granny. No one loved Granny but her. Where were my uncles? Why didn't they care about their mother? And my mother, why wasn't she getting off her big ass to help out? On and on and on. What did Auntie B expect? Granny was a real bitch. <laughs> I remember one of the days when she was on a rampage, mumbling gibberish with her fists flying. Mom staggered backwards, swatting away the blows, then fell over a coffee table and was drenched by half-finished malt liquors her fall had scattered. I was crying loudly, powerlessly held back by younger uncles who themselves were stunned and standing at the edge of the room. Auntie B smirked. 
sat on the couch with her arms around her daughter, and the older uncles pursued Granny, pulling at her gently lest they receive the same treatment. I was too young to know what that was all about, but Mom laments she was always singled out, and on TV that Mom was Granny's favorite. She wouldn't hit you if she didn't love you. (laughs) But then again, imagine having perpetually drunk sons and two beasts for daughters, one a garrulous martyr and the other an obese bully. I'd run away too. On the night I decided to follow in Granny's footsteps, I was upstairs in my room determined to finish at least one homework assignment. Filio piety came to mind again. I dug out the dictionary from under a pile of half-finished assignments. I first looked up filial, followed by piety, and then promptly decided this Confucius guy and his analects weren't for me. <laughs> I stuffed the book on a cluttered shelf next to my desk. There was rustling downstairs, and I quickly closed my doors and dimmed the lights. I hoped Mom would think I wasn't home. She never climbed the stairs, but I hadn't done the dishes, nor the garbage, nor the vacuuming, all of which could have inspired her to come up. Isaiah, I know you're up there. Come down here, right now. Coming, I called. Some grocery bags were on the coffee table, and she was sitting on the couch rummaging in her purse. At least I didn't have to go grocery shopping, I thought. I can't find my prescription, she muttered to herself, then looking at me. Put those groceries away. As I picked up the bag, she said, I see you didn't vacuum the floor like you're supposed to. And if that trash isn't out and those dishes done, I'm going to beat your ass. I'm doing some homework. It's due tomorrow. Well, if it was so important, why wasn't you doing homework instead of watching TV last night? I didn't have an answer for that one. You know the policy here, she said, apparently to the purse. But then she looked at me. Family and home come first before anything else. So you put those groceries away, do your chores, and then you can do that homework. She noticed me staring at her. Go on, she yelled, shooing me in the direction of the kitchen. Then in a muffled voice, she called out to me, speaking into the purse as if I were, it was a microphone. And I'm going to need you to pick up my prescription from the pharmacy. I must have forgotten to pick it up after work. So hurry up, because it closed in a couple of hours. I continued to stare at her, trembling, but this time with rage, not fear. By the way, Benita called me at work today. She said you were rude to her on the phone. What did I tell you about disrespecting your elders? Granny's your elder. Look how you're treating her. Mom looked up, her expression wild. Excuse me? She pushed the purse aside and got to her feet. Hulking towards me from across the room, she yelled, What did you just say to me? Nothing. I fought the urge to run, embrace myself. I heard what you said, and you too coward to repeat it. I felt her powerful, fleshy hand across my face. She did it again, and I fell. I scrambled backwards out of her shadow and stood up again. I don't like the way you've been acting lately, grumbling about helping out like you've got something better to do. Yeah, like my homework. She hits me in the mouth. My lip starts to smart and I can taste blood. It seems you forgot the other policy. Children are to be seen and not heard. If you don't like it, you can get out. She's been telling me that for as long as I can remember. There was a lump in my throat and I couldn't control the tears building up on my eyelids. She knows how to pull my strings and I hate it. I hate her. I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave, I told her. I pushed past her, trying trying to hold back the sobbing until I could make it out the door. I told myself, I can vanish. I can do this. Just like Granny, I can vanish too. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, nobody loves you like family. Uh, next up, I, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, David Mulholland, um, who's going to introduce Jenny Taylor Whitehorn, who, if you have ever called Lighthouse wondering about something, maybe there's a workshop on the website that doesn't make sense, or um, Mike has said something that doesn't make sense, um, or some such, um, you've probably reached a very, very pleasant young woman who is so freaking friendly. You just feel like you won the lottery. You've talked to Jenny Taylor Whitehorn. So um, not only is she our wonderful program assistant, she's also a draftee tonight. So anyways, I was going to introduce David and I started (laughs) talking about, none of that's about David. That's all Jenny. Um, Sorry. I got carried away. Uh, David is an award-winning screenwriter. He is a marathoner. He is, Andrea wrote some of these notes for me because um, she, she's um, so good at this kind of thing. He is the Pied Piper of the Silver Screen. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> it's a weird metaphor. You can really take that so many different ways, right? Because I'm not even going to try and unpack that one. Uh, what's that? I know, I know, but you did okay. Uh, he's a man who is cheered by the wit and grace of his students, and that's certainly true. And he's been around for a long time. You've been, you've been teaching for a while. You stayed with us. I appreciate that. You're incredibly patient. Uh, please give it up for David Mulholland. Thanks, I guess. I, don't, I only run half marathons, so I don't do the full marathons. It's too much work. <laughs> so uh, I'm here to introduce Jenny Taylor Whitehorn. She's, uh, she comes to the Lighthouse via Canada. She's from Prince Edward Island, for all you uh, Anna Green Gables fans. Um, <laughs> she's also our program assistant, as we just learned. Uh, so she's uniquely qualified. Uh, she will be around after this to answer questions about uh, Canadians' uh, the Canadian healthcare system, as well as any classes you might have questions about. Um, no, I'm kidding. Don't don't do that today. Wait till Monday. Wait till Monday. Call her at the phone. You can ask your healthcare questions then. Um, so uh, the first screenplay I read of Jenny's was about a talking horse named Derby. Uh, it's a children's movie, and then I also read a. Uh, a uh, movie of the week type movie, a made-for-TV movie, um, set in Saskatchewan, Canada. So um, since then, uh, those were both good, but I feel like she's really hit her stride and she's really found her true, unique voice here. Um, so what she'll be reading from tonight is delightfully uh, not good for television or talking <laughs> horses named Derby. So uh, please join me in welcoming Jenny Taylor-Whitehorn. And I have more people to welcome. A pre-thank you for all the people reading my screenplay with me tonight. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot of them. And they've been really nice to come and help me. I'm pretty nervous. Although Joe wasn't excellent. <laughs> you can cast in the next one. <laughs> um, yeah, this is um, uh, my screenplay. is called um, My Mean Gay Brother. Um, it's, 
I took a little bit out of this, but this is actually at the beginning. Um, so I took some scenes out, but um, it pretty much starts from the beginning. So. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> Fade in. Interior, Anna and Terry's living room night. It's Friday night in Maine. Light beers are chilled. Cheap bottles of wine are opened. Six friends sit around a well-played Scrabble board. Things are about to get low-key. <laughs> Anna Jones and Terry Marks sit like a couple, or would sit like one, if Anna wasn't sitting up, studying the board, and rearranging their letters. Anna stops and waits for the laughter in the room to die out. Your turn. Anna gestures to Eric and a very pregnant Sophie. Sit, uh, Sophie sits on Eric's lap. He rubs her back in slow, deliberate strokes. Beside them, Tom has his arm around his new, way-too-hot-for-him girlfriend, Nicole. <laughs> Nicole's hand slides from just above Tom's khaki knee to right below his khaki balls. <laughs> Let's see what we have here. Eric sits up and lays down a word on the board. Paradix. The room laughs, except Anna. I think it's paradox, with the no. All right, all right. I say you make up a meaning in ten seconds. We'll give it to you. Sophie brushes a piece of hair behind her ear. Eric also brushes that same piece behind her ear. Just play it simple. <laughs> a pair of dicks, that's all. Two dicks. Easy. <laughs> Anna, Anna's knee bounces along with the counting she's clearly doing in her head. Hmm, this is so hard. No, not hard at all. Just make something up. How about a rare type of gentle warts? Actually, they're not that rare. <laughs> Everyone looks at Nicole. I think it's been ten seconds. Seven seconds ago. Eric claps his hand. It's a baby paradox. Like when babies can't do simple tasks. Like parallel park or balance of stressful work and home life. It's French, pronounced paradis. Terry thinks, well, Anna laughs as if it's a big no. You can't use other languages. I'll accept that. What? <laughs> okay, I'm just going to get more wine. Anyone need anything? Yeah, I was uh, kind of hoping you were going to make those things tonight uh, with, with the cheese. Terry throws a D at him and follows Anna through the swinging door. Interior kitchen. The kitchen, littered with party snacks and mismatched dishes, dishes is small, decorated on a teacher's salary. Anna makes her way to the counter and grabs a bottle of wine. She stabs the cork and opens with the opener and twists. I can't believe you gave them that. It was French and it was stupid. Couple Scrabble is the worst. Why couldn't we just play individually or, like, start a round robin tournament? Something actually fun. Listen to me. Listen. Terry grabs Anna by the shoulders. This is the most fun we are ever going to have in our lives. <laughs> this is it. We're going to laugh at Eric's shitty jokes, and we're going to watch Tom get a hand job from his new girlfriend. <laughs> right in front of us. <laughs> we hit the good pillows, right? Anna laughs and relaxes. I think she's actually going to do it. I know she will. He's been waiting 30 years for this. <laughs> we could be missing it. we got to get out there. Anna laughs and Terry pushes her out the door. Interior living room. Anna and Terry come back in. The room is mid-conversation. One in four people actually have them. It's quite common, <laughs> really. Eric, Sylvie, and Tom check out their odds. Anna and Terry sit back down. She zeroes in on her letters. Did you guys switch our letters? Insert Anna's letters. R-M-Y-R-E-M-A. She must sabotage as Terry moves some things around. What about this? Insert letters. Marry me. The room waits. Anna shrugs. 
They're all like one-point letters. It won't be worth anything. <laughs> Anna is still looking over the board when Terry pulls out a ring. She claps her hand over her mouth. Oh my god, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> you are? Really? I almost want to take this ring back. <laughs> Don't take it back. I do. I mean, yes. They hug and kiss. Tom pulls out a bottle of champagne and pops the cork. Anna tries her ring on and holds her hand out for everyone to see. She kisses Terry again. Anna sits back in her place and waits for everyone else to get back in positions. Tom, I think it's your turn. Anna catches Sophie's eye and Sophie shakes her head. No. Oh, of course we're not still playing. Uh, God, we just got engaged. <laughs> she raises her glass and takes the drink. Anna's phone rings. Insert call display, Mom. Anna turns to Terry. Did you tell her already? Terry shakes his head. She picks it up and leaves the room. Interior hallway. Hey, I was just about to call you. Oh. Hey, Margaret. Is Mom... Anna listens. Her smile changes into nothing. A neutral, nothing face that's about to get really sad very soon. Interior living room. Anna comes back to the celebration. My mom's dead. She just died. What do I do? Oh, God, what do I do? Everyone goes quiet. Nicole goes to embrace Anna, but Terry stops her and grabs Anna's hands. He leads her to a chair. I'm going to get your computer. Okay, you sit. We'll book a flight. Terry leaves the room. Anna sits. She looks up at Nicole. Sorry about all this. Oh, it's okay. We didn't have any other plans tonight anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Terry comes back and kisses Anna hard on the forehead before kneeling beside her. Sophie, Eric, and Tom start to clean up. Terry asks her questions. Anna nods and politely wipes away any tears that fall. Interior, living room, night. Anna's computer's open. Her glasses are on. She's dialing a phone number. Open photo albums are strewn about the floor. Terry walks in. Hey, buddy. You should get some sleep. Early flight tomorrow. Anna doesn't even look up. I can't get a hold of a caterer or a florist. I can't even get a hold of Pete. This may not even be his number anymore. I don't even know my own brother's number. Who doesn't know their own brother's phone number? I don't know my sister's number. You talk to your sister every day. I don't know by heart. I still have to make the picture collage. I don't know which one we should use for the altar. Which one do you like better? Anna holds up two identical, clearly duplicate black and white headshots of an exquisite-looking older woman, Leslie. She's a Heather Gray version of Anna. Terry takes her computer and phone and sets them aside. You know what? Let's maybe just take a minute. Just 30 seconds and be sad. You don't have to cry. Just let's be sad, okay? Ready? Go. Anna looks from one picture to the other, and her shoulders fall lower and lower. Okay. Anna stops him. Her eyes weld with tears. Maybe another couple minutes. Anna leans into Terry, and he wraps his arms around her. Cutscene. Exterior New New York block day. Anna and Terry step out of step out of a New York City cab in front of a condo building. Anna watches pedestrians scuttle by, as if Anna's mother was still alive, and today was just any day. Terry gets their bags and puts one hand on her back and they move towards the door. Interior Leslie's condo day. Anna unlocks Leslie's loft-style condo. She lets the door swing open. The loft is an unlikely blend of cosmopolitan and cozy and it makes Anna's throat tighten just looking at it. She walks in, followed by Terry, on his phone. It doesn't matter. They don't serve food on planes anymore, Ma. Then be a vegetarian for the hour and a half it takes to get here. (laughs) Anna passes by a coffee mug on an end table. Lipstick stains are still there. Anna stares at the freshness of it. Terry motions to her that he'll take the call in the other room. Anna moves down the hall and into interior Pete's room. Anna walks into a boy's room that looks nothing 
but looks like nothing has been touched in years. She picks up a little league trophy from the shelf. She smiles and sets it back. She picks up a framed picture. Insert picture of young Anna and young Pete. Young Pete smiles. Young Anna smiles too, but has a penis drawn in black marker right beside her mouth. <laughs> she frowns and quickly puts it back. She leaves the room. Interior, Leslie's bedroom. Anna opens the door to a pristine master bedroom. The bed is brass with shiny sheets that lay in a rumpled pile. As Anna moves closer to the bed, she sees Pete, her brother, sleeping. Although Pete's almost 30, his boyish face and shaggy hair makes him look so young, curled up like that. Anna whispers, Pete. The other side of the bed moves, and a small, naked man pops out from under the covers. <laughs> Anna jumps far. You know the time, do you? It's, I have an audition at 11. <laughs> Anna... <laughs> Anna slaps her hand over her mouth and backs out of the room, bumping into things and tripping over her feet. Interior condo, kitchen. Anna stumbles into the kitchen, her surprised face still intact. Terry is off the phone. The fan will be here tomorrow. Sophie's too far along to fly, and Tom and G-Warts can't make it. <laughs> you, you okay, buddy? Naked man rushes in, now clothed and disheveled. He waves. Terry waves back. Anna sticks out her hand. You must be a friend of Pete's. So, it's so nice to meet you. I'm his sister Anna. It's so nice. Naked man shakes her hand, trying to remember. Pete? Uh, oh, Pete, yeah. Uh, we're, we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> Naked man winks at Terry. Terry tilts his head like a confused puppy. Uh, I gotta run, but hey, I uh, heard your mom died. Totally sucks. Sorry about that. <laughs> Good luck at your audition. Oh, thanks. Wish me luck. <laughs> she just did? Naked man winks again and takes off, leaving the door open. Anna rushes over to shut it. She's about to burst. That man was in Pete's bed. Well, my mom's bed. Naked. With Pete. Isn't that fantastic? Terry doesn't have time to process, as Pete, dressed only in brief, shuffles in and over to the fridge. Pete, or Anna composes herself, kind of. Hey there! Pete looks up, but his face remains expressionless. What are you doing here? Anna gasps and grabs Terry's arm. Oh my god, he, he doesn't know yet. I know Mom died. <laughs> doesn't mean you shouldn't knock or anything. Pete searches the fridge. Terry steps forward. Hey man, I'm so sorry. Anything I can do? Anything at all? Pete shrugs. My friend Hermie puked in the bathroom last night. You could clean it up. That's not what he meant. It's related. She puked in... She puked in sadness. It's fine. I don't mind. No problem. Terry leaves. Who's that guy? Terry, my boyfriend of seven years. Now my fiancé. He looks like our cousin Terry. We don't have a cousin Terry. It was that Terry, my boyfriend. Why do you look so much alike, then? It's pretty disgusting. Pete walks into the living room. Anna follows. Living room. Pete sits on the couch and flips on the TV. Anna sits, too. So, how are you, you know? I don't want to talk about it. Okay, no, sure. When you're ready. I met your friend. He seems nice. Yeah, he's the nicest. <laughs> So nice. I had no idea. I'll admit I was surprised. Why didn't you tell me? 
What it's like to have friends? I figured you'd find one eventually. Oh, I'm having people over later, so better stay at your hotel. But the wake is tonight. Do people give you money for those? Terry comes in. He's a shade paler than before. That was bad. Really bad. Right? (laughs) For a girl who never eats, her stomach contents are really gross. Pete looks Terry up and down. Terry, have you ever considered becoming bulimic? (laughs) Terry looks himself up and down. He's kidding. I'm really not. (laughs) Anna looks at Pete and starts fresh again. Want to come out to eat with us? Maybe get something to eat? Just leave me some money. I'll get something myself. (laughs) Anna goes through her purse. She puts money on the couch. This isn't Canada or wherever you guys live. That's nothing. Anna fishes for more cash as Terry checks himself out in a window reflection. Will your friend be coming back? Because I bet he'll be hungry for food. Auditions can be tiring. <laughs> Pete gives Anna a look but takes the money. Exterior streets of New York Day. Terry and Anna are walking along the streets. Anna tries to catch up with Terry, who is pissed. He was just joking. He really wasn't. <laughs> Anna floats along the sidewalk. He's gay. I can't believe I didn't see it. All these years, he's just always been so not gay, you know? It's just I don't know any gay people who steal credit cards or, like, light small fires for fun. (laughs) I don't know anybody who lights small fires for fun. (laughs) This is good, though. This is a step forward. The burden of such a huge secret, a lifetime of hiding who he really is, will be lifted off his shoulders, and he'll open up to me, and we can be real brother and sister. Okay. Lovely. But remember, he's still not the cuddliest kitten in the butt, batch. I mean, why didn't he open up today? Uh, he certainly had an opportunity. Uh, his mother just died, his sister just got engaged, his soon-to-be brother-in-law just barged in on him in his underwear. He was the one who came out undressed. <laughs> Give him a second, would you? I don't know, maybe he doesn't like you. Terry stops, checks himself out. <laughs> Think it's my legs? <laughs> Too long. She nods. That's why I don't like you. Would you look at those stems? They're like thoroughbred horse legs. You're right. I should probably more enter more races, yeah? <laughs> Anna nods and holds the door open for Terry as he tosses his mane and saunters in. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Quality, quality work, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for coming again. Thank you to our readers. Let's give them another hand. Incredibly talented. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.